everybody. Before we get started with um, the flyers that I handed out, these are just some little ones I printed up really quick. This coming Sunday, so some of you know, some of you don't know, but my other ministry besides teaching here is teaching martial arts to refugee kids uptown from all over the world, like literally from all over the world, everywhere from Africa to Latin America to Far East Asia. Um, and so I've been doing that since January. We've got a group of about 20 of them that come. Well, we, uh, Project 658 asked if I would be interested in doing something for the moms that can't always come to the class, but like a self-defense seminar for the women. And so I told them, yeah, absolutely. Um, I talked with uh, my girlfriend, Kimberly. She lives up in Ohio. She's going to come down visit this weekend. Yeah, right? And, uh, <laughs> I know, it's shocking. Somebody actually likes a Bible nerd. But, um, yeah, it's no secret. She's, she is a martial artist. She's a black belt as well. And um, 20 years martial arts experience. I have 30 years experience. And uh, she's coming to visit this weekend, this Sunday afternoon at Project 658 near Uptown. We're going to do, she and I together, uh, basically she's just going to beat me up and show the other women how to do that. But it's going to be for, it's, it's, it's twofold. One, it's to give the, the women of the refugee community some practical just basic self-defense tips because a lot of them live in pretty rough areas of Charlotte, uh, low-income housing that's you know not always safe if you're a woman. Uh, and then also, though, we open it up to all of women in the community because my goal in even doing it beyond just providing self-defense teaching for the women is to build community between the, the women of the refugee community and their daughters and the women in Charlotte, just anybody. So what we're trying to do is provide an atmosphere where they can come together and it's just women can come and meet other women and learn some stuff. So it's, there's no flipping, no flying, no kicking, punching, karate kid stuff. It's none of that. It's just basic, practical self-defense techniques, everything from how to avoid a situation, how to be safe if you're a woman walking uptown or walking to your car, to how to use a thing of mascara to defend yourself, which I didn't know you could do until Kimberly showed me. So we're gonna be showing a lot of fun stuff like that. There's no age limit, there's no health requirement other than just come and do what you what you feel like you wanna participate in. If a technique is a little too much or a little too, like I don't know, totally free to just take a you know, step off to the side for me. But it's going to be two hours, Sunday afternoon, 3.30 to 5.30. So it's after morning church, but before evening stuff for most churches. And she and I teach it. It's only $20. And uh, if for somebody that's a student, high school or college, it's only $10 for the two-hour seminar. Um, and we're basically doing this just to cover expenses of, of getting her down here and back. So for sure, if you've got you know, coworkers, family, any, any woman 13 and up, Mothers and daughters, great combination to come do it together. Um, if you, you know anybody, coworkers, whatever. I have these flyers, so I don't want to take any of them home with me. So before you leave, grab one. It's got all the information. You don't have to register in advance, but it helps us get an idea of how many people are coming, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So anyway, come check it out, and we would love to have you there. Let's do some Leviticus. <clears throat> We're, on the, we're closing in, the end of the book. We're on the, uh, the, we started chapter 25 last week. Chapter 25 is a long chapter, but it's also an important chapter because it's about jubilee and freedom. And remember, those of you, some of you were here for Exodus. A lot of you weren't here for Exodus, but the entire theme of Exodus was freedom. 
freedom from slavery to Pharaoh into slavery to God, slavery to Yahweh. So that's the key theme of God's people in the Torah, is they're not being, being set free just because freedom is a great thing in general. They're being set free from an illegitimate master, which was Pharaoh in Egypt, into serving the only true legitimate master, which is God through the covenant of Mount Sinai. So Israel is uniquely God's slaves. Israel are called God's slaves all throughout Exodus, all throughout Scripture. And that's not an Old Testament concept only. Uh, In the New Testament, Paul always, almost always, introduces himself in his letters as Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. The slavery motif dominates both Testaments, Old and New, and it's a self-designation that in the New Testament, especially Christians adapted and used. Christians in the New Testament actually almost boasted in their slavery. Not slavery to a certain earthly master, but slavery to God himself. And ultimately it was that that sowed the seeds of overturning the slave trade, the slave concept in the wider world in a lot of history. It's almost like Christianity overcame slavery in the Roman Empire by undermining it theologically, by taking away its foundations, and by holding up the fact that all humans bear the image of God. But it's not like that was just a New Testament concept. That found its origin, its roots in Torah's depiction of what it meant to be in a relationship of, of, we've talked about before, of being an evid, which is the Hebrew word translated as either slave or servant. And there's a video you can go back and check on the YouTube channel or podcast. It was back when we were around Exodus 20, 21. We did a whole whole session here on biblical slavery in Exodus. And I wanted to just briefly mention some of the points about that that we covered because they're important when we read now this chapter, the second half of this chapter in Leviticus that also seems to deal with this concept of the evid, the slave or the servant. The reason that Bible translations are inconsistent in translating the word as slave or servant is because neither of those words really adequately or fully capture all of the nuance of the Hebrew term evid. It had at least four different meanings in terms of the type of servitude that was being talked about. Everything from forced servitude, like Egypt forced Israel to be, what we would think of as like slavery, slavery, to indentured servanthood, where a person would literally sell themselves to the household of someone else for a certain period of time in exchange for providing for them, and so they didn't starve. And then to this unique thing that Israel had where a person could choose to voluntarily join themselves to a family as their evid for life. And they would do this ceremony that uh, Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy, I think 15, depicts it where they would have a ceremony of them literally like, like nailing themselves to the doorpost of this family's house. And they do it through the robe of the year. And it was basically saying, I'm, I'm choosing to stay with this family for life because I will serve them. It was, it was very similar to, in, in some ways, how in J- cultures like Japan, where they had the concept of the samurai who pledged his loyalty for life to their feudal lord. And it was held in a high honor. Not a perfect analogy, but it's, it's, it's not, we have the burden in our society because of the sins of America and because of the, the, our dark history in how we've treated slavery for the first half of our country's existence, we have the burden of having to push through the concept of colonial slave trading and chattel slavery. Because in our minds, as soon as you hear slave, you think roots. At least I do, right? The show with LeVar Burton, and you think, um, you know, Uncle Tom's Cabin or um, Harriet Tubman. 
getting slaves out. And, and those are the things we think of because in America, in the transatlantic slave trade, North and South America, it, slavery was in, in, in almost no way equal to what we see in Scripture. For instance, in Scripture, uh, Exodus flat out makes slave trading a capital crime. Did you guys know that? In, in the Bible, if you traded another person, if you were involved, if you, if you took a person by force and sold them, that was one of the handful of capital offenses in the Bible. Um, you can find that Exodus, uh, yeah, Exodus 21, verse 16. So right in and of itself, the entire transatlantic slave trade would be negated in, under biblical law. It was illegal, and it was it was a capital offense to forcibly take someone anywhere to kidnap, kidnapping, and slave trading. In the New Testament, First Timothy, Paul likens slave traders in his list of vices with the murderers and idolaters and, and everything, and slave traders is one of those. And in Revelation, the judgment that's pronounced on Babylon as it's falling, one of the things that's listed against the godly, godless empire is it traded in human lives. So that's something just in and of itself that needs to go viral among Christians when we think of slavery in the Bible, that it was illegal and it was a capital offense. You could not trade slaves. Furthermore, and this is uh, for those of you that mentioned that, that look up to people like Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, that was entirely condoned by Scripture. Scripture said if a runaway slave comes to you, you don't send them back. Right? That was unheard of. That was definitely illegal in the ancient world. And it, yet in Torah, God flat out says, no, you welcome the runaway slave as a haven. So that's strike two against American chattel slavery. Uh, the other thing is in the Hebrew Bible, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, a slave could only serve for six years. In the seventh year, they were to go free. And not just go free. Deuteronomy chapter 15, if you read it, actually I'm going to read it because no discussion of slavery should ever be had in the Bible without knowing this. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Verse 12. If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And this is also repeated in Exodus, that it's a six-year term. Verse 13. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl, push it through his earlobe into the door, and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your maidservant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free, because his service to you these six years has been worth twice as much as that of a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. So again, we have to do as best we can to separate in our minds our concepts of when we hear the word slave from the biblical concept of being an evident. Because they just weren't the same. Now, does that mean that being an evident, you know, 
what was it a while back? I don't watch the show, but our friends do. The Duck, Duck, Duck Show Dynasty, the bearded guy. And he got in a lot of trouble because he said something like, well, everybody back during slavery, all of the slaves were happy, and it was great. Uh, and Disney made Song of the South when I was a kid. Uh, growing up, I used to watch Song of the South, Zippity-Doo-Dah, Zippity-Day. They, they pulled that. You can't, you can't watch that or buy it anymore um, because of it portrayed slavery as this happy time, this Zippity-Doo-Dah, Zippity-Day time. And rightfully so, critics pointed back and said, no, slavery was horrendous. Families were divided, people were beat to death, people were sold as, at will. Uh, no, slavery was not a great thing. Well, that's true in biblical times as well. It's not like, don't hear me saying that slavery was the thing that God wanted for all time and it was wonderful. God entered into human history in the Exodus event and he started where they were as a culture. And he did not say, I'm going to do everything 100% different from all the world around you. Rather, he said, I'm going to take you out of the world around you and I'm going to put you on a path, on a trajectory that takes all of the cultural ethics in the world, in the ancient Near East, and raises them high. The bar is going to be set higher. And as we go into the future, it's even going to become higher and higher until the end, the ultimate goal, which is new heavens, new earth, where everyone has enough. The prophets look forward to nobody being poor, no one having to sell themselves or their families or anything into slavery or into servanthood. Everyone, as the prophets Micah 4, Zechariah 2 says, everyone will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree and nobody will lack for anything. That was the goal. Israel was at the beginning of the path of that what's called redemptive trajectory, the trajectory of Scripture. So as you go along in Scripture, you see the status continually elevated in terms of when it comes to slavery, servanthood, in the New Testament as well. And it culminates, you could argue, it culminates in the book of Philemon, where, where Paul, in an in a incredibly uh, diplomatic way, entirely undermines the concept of slavery with a runaway slave who is voluntarily going back to his former master, both of whom now have met Jesus and become slaves to Jesus. And so the dynamic is, so now what does this look like? We're both slaves to Jesus, but yet I'm your earthly slave. How's this going to work? And Paul in, in Philemon, he talks about the implications of the gospel for that. But the point is, you see a redemptive trajectory in Scripture. It's not a flat teaching. It's not what Torah says, that's once and for all, that's God's best for society. Torah is not God's best for society. Torah presumes that there will be poor people in the land, as we saw last week, and begins to offer a way for the people of Israel to help alleviate that reality that there will be poor people in the land. People will go into battle. When they do, there will be captives. How are they to be treated? Torah deals with that very differently than the other nations around them. But still, from our end of the redemptive history spectrum, looking back, we go, whoa, that's not, that's not how it should be. But yet from their end, when it's happening, they're like, this is much better than how the other nations are doing it. So we see this movement, and that's something that, that Christians don't always wrestle with enough uh, when we're looking for chapter and verse and just trying to find a proof text to say what the Bible says. So with those things in mind, the fact that you served for six years and then you could go free, there was no, uh, there was no forced lifelong servitude. It was voluntary in Israel, among Israel. It was voluntary servitude if you wanted to serve for life. Um, and if you, even if you did serve life among the nations, the ones who were captured in war, for instance, and they were, 
into what we considered forced labor. They were prisoners of war, captives. Even then, the laws of Exodus 21 still applied. If you injured a servant that left any kind of blemish, the servant went free. So in other words, if you, if you abused a, or an evid, they went free. Exodus 21 says that. So that would preclude anything that we would think of as abuse, you know, whippings and, and the, the, you've seen the photos of black Americans with the scars all over the back that from uh, lynching era times. And that would be a free man in the, in the biblical worldview. Any, any scars, any, you know, you knock a tooth out, you give a black eye, you do any of that, you have negated your right to have them working as your ethic, they go free. So these things don't get mentioned in biblical talks of slavery, especially by critics, but even by Christians who just don't know Torah. We don't know the different, the various laws about slavery in Scripture. All of that in the background then, this is the situation now that's going to be addressed. This chapter was about selling the land. Remember, it started off with the Jubilee year and how God said, look, it's my land. I'm the landowner. You are all my tenant farmers. You are all sharecroppers to some degree. So I am going to say every 50 years, we hit the reset button. Every 50 years, Everybody's land goes back to its original family owner, tribe, tribal allotment. And that haven't even been given yet. That'll be given in numbers. But before God even says it, he's ingraining in them. It's not your land. It's my land. You're working on it. If you buy land, we talked last week, if you get into hardship, this is how it would work. You're a farmer. Your crops aren't that great this year. So you have a little bit of debt. You don't, have, you don't make enough of your crops to cover the expenses of your family and, and your servants and everything else. So what do you do? Well, you, you, you borrow against using some of your seed or you portion off a little bit of your land to put that into the next year's seeds and the next year's harvest. Well, next year comes, maybe that's not great as well. And you can't pay off that original loan that you took. Then you're going deeper in debt as if you have credit card debt, which is probably most of us if statistics are true. You know this feeling. So I've got to take out more loans to cover that debt, hoping that a, a windfall will happen. And it doesn't happen. So then you have to get drastic. You have to sell the land itself. Then if it, is, if it still continues, you're still in debt from bad decisions or from natural factors or from whatever, you're still in debt. Then in the ancient world, you would sell yourself or your family into evidness, evidhood, servanthood, slavery, to that family. And you would serve them for a number of years to pay off the debt. And then you would go free. That's what's being envisioned in this section that's about to be discussed. So God's already said every 50 years, the land's going to go back to its ownership. Every 50 years, that's the goal. Now, what about the people who have sold the land and sold themselves? What's their life? So we start in verse 25. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what his countrymen has sold. If, however, a man has no one to redeem it for him, but he himself prospers and acquires sufficient means to redeem it, he is to determine the value for the year since he sold it and refund the balance to the man to whom he sold it. He can then go back to his own property. But if he does not acquire the means to repay him, what he sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. It will be returned in the Jubilee. Then he can go back to his property. At most, you could only lose your land for 50 years because the Jubilee was every 50 years, at most. If a man sells a house in a walled city, so they would build cities and in the walls they would actually, that would be their houses like the outside would be the wall and then that would also be one of the walls of your house you just build off onto the inside as a way of fortifying and protecting your family units together in a city 
but it's not the land, that's the, that's a city. Not, there's not talking about crops or fields or, or harvest. We're talking about city life. So God makes it, says it's different. If a man sells a house in a walled city, he retains the right of redemption a full year after its sale. During that time, he may redeem it. If it's not redeemed before a full year has passed, the house in the walled city shall belong permanently to the buyer and his descendants. It's not to be returned in the Jubilee. Land was what was returned in the Jubilee, not structures. This is a difference that God makes. It's the land that God owns. The structures and the things people build on the land, not, it's not the same thing. So this is not just a general thing of wealth. God has a theological point in this about his ownership of the land. But houses and villages without walls around them are to be considered as open country. They can be redeemed and they are to be returned in the Jubilee. The Levites always have the right to redeem their houses in the Levitical towns which they possess, so the property of the Levites is redeemable. That is, a house sold in any town they hold and is to be returned in the Jubilee because the houses in the towns of the Levites are their property amongst the Israelites. But the pasture land belonging to their towns must not be sold. It's their permanent possession. So you'll find out in numbers, the Levites, the tribe that work, the clergy tribe, so to speak, they don't get land. They have cities within the tribal lands of Israel designated as Levitical cities. And the land surrounding those cities, the pasture land surrounding those cities, and the cities themselves, that is the Levites' inheritance. They don't get crops and they don't get all of that stuff. They just, because their focus is not on land ownership, their focus is on working in the temple or in the tabernacle. So what God's saying is their stuff stay. Even if they have to sell some things, even if they have to enter into debt because of hardship, God's not immune to the realities of living in a world where there's commerce and trade and debt. He's, he's, he's accounting for it in this. But he's saying ultimately, every 50 years, it goes back to the original, including the Levites. Verse 35, if one of your countrymen becomes poor, so the first one is if he becomes poor and sells some of his property. This is the second one. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so he can continue to live among you. Help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident. You can translate alien as immigrant. Help him as you would an immigrant. It assumes that there will be an attitude of help and hospitality for the immigrant. It assumes that there will be welcoming for the immigrant. It assumes that there will be a desire to do what you can for someone who finds himself in a strange land from somewhere else. That has massive implications, especially during election year. Um, but the point is, the attitude, the ad, not the policies, we can debate policies all day, the attitude, God assumes that his people will want to welcome or to be hospitable to the immigrant. One, because in the ancient Near East, as it is today in the Middle East, hospitality is the highest virtue. Two, though, is God says, of all people on the earth, you should know what it's like to be immigrants without land. Of all the people on the earth, you should know what it's like to be wandering, to not have a place of your own. That's what's so important in Torah, and that's the irony of what's developed in modern politics, not even in America, but also in Israel itself, uh, where there are these attitudes that are very natural to have. There's the other people, and then there's our people. We've got to look out for our people, but then the other people, we don't have to look out for them. No, what God's saying in here is, yeah, there are your people and the other people. There are differences. There are, he's going to talk about that. There are such things as immigrants. There are such things as outsiders. But the attitude 
towards them should always be seeking the highest good. And particularly among yourselves then, treating yourselves at the very least how well you would treat the so-called outsider. So again, this is also improving the unity of Israel while at the same time assuming its hospitality towards non-Israel. And all that's setting up for the new covenant when the doors to Israel are going to be blown open in terms of ethnicity, race, nationality, and the church becomes full color. So it goes on to say, do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Israelites could not charge interest to other Israelites who were in need. Now, what does this say for those of you that work at Waco or uh, Wells Fargo or Bank of America? Does it mean your entire industry is built upon ungodliness? Eh, could be, but not necessarily for that reason. This is not talking about commercial loans done for commercial advantage. This is not talking about normal business loans needed where there's assumed risk and you loan and lend and all of that. It's not talking about it. This is talking about loans of necessity. This is talking about loans up to people in poverty who need help. This is why almost across the board, Christians oppose those corner payday cash predatory lending buildings that you see dotted in certain neighborhoods. And you only see them in certain neighborhoods, right? They're predatory. This is why Christians oppose those cash advance. Most Christians oppose those places because all they are doing is making their profit by preying on the people who are least able to afford to have interest against them. It's very different than somebody wanting to build a multi-million dollar business and going and getting a loan and involving lots of attorneys and lots of land and jobs. and Not the same. They're two different things. So some people have said, well, so does this mean so Christians should never charge interest for anything? No, no, no. If someone's in need for their livelihood, if it's I've got to get a loan or else I'm going to have to sell myself into debt. I've got to get a loan or else I'm going to have to starve. I need help because I'm at my rope's end. That's what this is referring to. And it's forbidding Israel, within Israel, from charging interest it's saying, loan what they need and let them pay you back for what you loan them. Full stop. Because it's all God's anyway. He's the ultimate landlord. So that should definitely inform not just how we do business, but how we do interpersonal business. How we help people in need. You know, Do we help people hoping to get something in return? Do we see a catastrophe as an excuse to price gouge? Oh, there's, there's a natural disaster where we can raise the price of this and our profit line will go up. That will bring the wrath of God much more than any of the things that people usually rant and rail against on TV. Taking advantage of the orphan and the widow is the number one thing that ticks God off far more than any of the big sexual sins, far more than any of the big using God's name in vain or any of those other things. You want to talk about what will bring judgment on a national level, if anything, in Scripture. It's taking advantage of the weakest of society. That's where God's heart is in this section. So he goes on to say then, if one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, so this is like the last resort, sells himself as a slave, do not make him work as a slave. 
an Evan. He is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. And that's a different word in Hebrew. It's a different, uh, it, it's, it's a hired worker. It's like an independent contractor versus a family member slave or Evan. He is to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released and he will go back to his own clan and to the property of his forefathers. Because the Israelites are my Evan, my servants, whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as Evan. As slaves. That word's the same, by the way. If you read the NIV, it uses slave in one and servant in the other. It's the same word. Um, Israelites cannot be sold as slaves because they're my slaves, whom I brought out of Egypt. Verse 43, do not rule over them ruthlessly. Fear your God. Your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. In other words, if they're going to be evid, they're coming from the nations around you through the rights of either through being captured in battle or through them selling themselves like uh, into slavery within Egypt in order to survive, all of those kind of things. Uh, you can will them to your children as you can will them to your children as inherited property and can make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. If an alien or a temporary resident among you becomes rich and one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells himself to the alien living among you or to a member of the alien's clan, he retains the right of redemption after he has sold himself. One of his relatives may redeem him. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in his clan may redeem him. Or if he prospers, he may redeem himself. He and his buyer are to count the time from the year he sold himself up to the year of Jubilee. The price for his release is to be based on the rate paid to a hired man for that number of years. If many years remain, he must pay for his redemption a larger share of the price paid for him. If only a few years remain until Jubilee is to compute that and pay for his redemption accordingly. He is to be treated as a man hired from year to year. He must see to it that his owner does not rule over him ruthlessly. Even if he does not, it's not redeemed in any of these ways, he and his children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as slaves. They are my slaves whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So again, God's emphasizing everybody's slave. Israelites are my slaves. And they will be slaves to no one else. The last point that I'll make about uh, this chapter when you're reading it, we are very sensitive in our culture because chattel slavery in this country treated people as things. And we are very sensitive to things that dehumanize, treating people as things. So when we read language in here that uses commercial language to describe people, immediately we go, wait, that's dehumanizing. We can't do that. One way to think of it that will maybe help put it in perspective, is given everything else that the Bible teaches, that even in the Old Testament, the Torah teaches about the personhood of people, even slaves were considered persons, even slaves were in the image of God, even slaves had rights, even slaves, it was capital offense, if you took their life, it was capital offense, if you kidnapped them, I mean, they were people. So when we come to a language that seems to use commercial language to describe people, we start to go, oh, I don't like that. Think of it this way. You guys are sports fans, a lot of you. A lot of your sports fans. Do you immediately bristle when you hear that the Panthers traded someone? Like, depends on who they are. I mean, if they're a bad player, obviously. <laughs> or they acquired, let's say the Panthers acquired so-and-so, and the Panthers in the deal traded so-and-so. That's commercial language. That's that's talking about property. But we, we, we know that that's a... a somewhat metaphorical or secondary, it's non-literal language, right? If Cam Newton were to get traded from the Panthers for whatever, 
and another team were to buy him out, they're buying his contract. We don't think, oh, well, that means he's a slave. That means, you know, what we think is like, no, that's the language used of teams trading because they're working in human performance. So that's what the teams are buying, human performance. But that doesn't in any way reflect on how those team players can be treated as humans. And there's, a, there's, a, there's just a, we all recognize that. Because in sports, we use business terminology to describe human beings. Well, it's not a perfect analogy by any means, but what it is is it at least shows you at least that you can, there are ways that you can be talking about people that are fully human and fully created in the image of God, but still using commercial language. It depends on the setting, on the type of literature, and on the context in when it's being said. And so that's what you see in this chapter on the laws about uh, Israel's slaves, Israel's evid, is God saying this is how this system is going to work. And so he does use language that for us, again, we're looking back down the redemptive trajectory. We're going, that's not where it should be given what I know about Jesus. But back here at the time where all they have is knowledge of how the rest of the world is working, that looks remarkable. So it's one of those things that we need to wrestle with, but we are out of time, so no more wrestling. Have a great week. Come back next week. We're getting into the penultimate chapter of Leviticus. If you don't know what penultimate means, Google it. We got extras here. Um, if you want to grab a flyer, there should be some around there for the self-defense seminar. I'd love to see any of you or any of the women in your life come to that. Otherwise, have a great week.